Welcome back to Bible time in 1 Thessalonians. Um, go to 1 Thessalonians. We will be in verse 14 today of chapter 2. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would help us today. I pray that your word would go forth with power. I pray that you'd bless this message. Bless those that hear it. Lord, we believe we're obeying you, Lord, by putting up these messages, Lord, and having received this ministry. We faint not, looking for your mercy and your grace and your power to carry on. And we ask you, Lord God, to give what's needed here. Give us the bread that we need, Father, from your word so that we can give it to others, Lord. I pray that you'd teach us and teach others through this, and I pray that your power would go with this ministry and with these messages and touch the lives of those that you intend for it to touch, and let it do that work that you've sent it to do, Lord, for your word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. You said it will accomplish that for which it is sent, and we thank you for this promise. In Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 14, For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered the um, suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. And this message today we're going to title, A Heritage of Suffering. A Heritage of Suffering. Now we had looked at previously verse 12 um, and then verse 10 before that, and this is because in our studies earlier we had gotten on the topic of apostleship and went through this chapter and picked up some high points there um, that spoke of apostleship and specifically and dealt with some apostolic doctrines. And now we're coming back and picking up the verses that we had gone over, that we'd passed over before with only mentioning instead of actually studying. So you can go back and look at these at the other texts in this chapter if you would like. They're all um, can be ordered by um, order of the verse. <clears throat> there on sermon audio. So if that's what you'd like to do, I'd encourage you to do it. In the meantime, we're in verse 14. Uh, verse 12 said yesterday that you would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. And then they said, for this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which worketh effectually, which effectually worketh, excuse me, also in you that believe. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered um, like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. So the first thing that we're going to look at here is this um, opening statement that he makes for ye brethren. And here Paul establishes the equality of the believer, the equality of the brethren. He establishes right here. We'll look at the context. Um, verse 1 of the whole book, chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we study that in detail. You can go back and look. We made much out of the fact that Paul did not even quote his apostolic authority in this opening of his epistle to the Thessalonians. And we talked about many of the reasons um, from the Bible that we can see that he would do such a thing and would neglect his office in writing this epistle. Uh, most of the time, whenever you're writing to people under your authority, you would include to a degree your authority um, in that letter, but in this case, he did not. We study that out in detail, but there we can see the equality of the brethren that Paul was not lording it over them, even as it says in the book of Second Peter, 
He tells the elders which are among you, I exhort whom also an elder, feed the flock of God which is, an among, which is among you, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away." So here, the idea of a man lording it over the flock as if a lord or an earl or a lady or a caliphate or a emperor or something to that nature, a magistrate, um, I can't remember what they called them in China um, back in the days. What was the name, what were the rulers called in China? I totally forgot what they called them, but um, in any case... This, is, this concept is rejected by Christ. The concept of lording it over the flock, the concept of being some kind of ruler that sits in a high place and um, has some kind of, as Pastor Reggie was talking to us in the prayer meeting last night, some kind of advantage over the people because of his, um, or some kind of special admiration because of his place of advantage, because of his leadership. He says, this ought not so to be, and he was teaching against it, as the Bible clearly does. Um, look at chapter 2 and verse 6, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. And they there is the first mention of apostolic authority on any level um, by Paul to the church of the Thessalonians, and here instead of using it to um, get their obedience, which is not necessarily inappropriate, he uses that in different places, but here instead of using it to give them um, a motivation to obey, he says, we did not use our authority as apostles of Christ. We did not use that authority, that position that God gave us to Lord it over you, but instead, verse 7, we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. That lines up with what we read in the book of Peter. Um, I believe that was 1 Peter that we read earlier. I believe 1 Peter 5, but I forgot to check. Um, then we can see in verse 2, or verse 13 of chapter 2, that these came as messengers of God, and that the apostles, and um, here it gives us Paul, Silvanus, and Timotheus, who are speaking, and he calls us the apostles of Christ. And of course, we studied apostolic doctrine in detail um, through this, and because of this, because that's what came up in the Word of God, I encourage you to look that up and read it out. We need, listen, the Bible lets all the air out of the fake apostle tires. Okay? It's this puffing up that happens. If you just go to the Bible, study the Bible, what it says about apostles, you'll find out that it just so, ever so gently pushes in on the valve stem and lets all the air out of the tires of the false apostle junk. Okay? And they've got nothing. They're flopping along, and pretty soon they're riding on rims. And next thing you know, they're begging for help because they've got four flats and they can't get anywhere. And that's the way it should be. This 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 lording it over people apostleship um, of our day is a farce and a sham. These are apostles of Satan, ministers of Satan that run around extorting the church and claiming false signs, false revelations, false healings, false miracles. But that does not make 
either the gift of apostle to the church or miracles or signs or wonders or anything else false in and of itself. We just need to get back to the Bible and find the biblical limits and parameters for the word apostle, how it's used, how God uses it, how God defines it, how God defines miracles, how God uses miracles, why he uses miracles, and we've studied that out in detail. But here these men that came as the apostles of Christ are preaching and teaching um, to these men in Thessalonica, and he says to them in verse 13, ye received, he says, the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God. So these men even came bearing the word of God, and in spite of this, verse 14, he says, for ye brethren, for ye brethren, and he uses this word brethren, Paul called them brethren. Go to Matthew 23 quickly. Should have sent you there earlier so you could have found your place. Matthew 23, verse 8. We're going to find that Jesus Christ here says, But be ye not called rabbi, for one is your master. So that word rabbi, meaning master, which is given in definition by Christ himself. But be not ye called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ. And he gives a capital M for that master there. And that displays his deity once again. But be but be not ye called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ. Verse 8 of Matthew 23, look closely, and all ye are brethren. And all ye are brethren. This is doctrine from the lips of Jesus Christ. All ye are brethren. And this teaches us the equality of the believer. In the United States of America, and if I... If I'm remember, not crossing this up with the Constitution, which sometimes I get the openings of the two mixed up, but he says there, I believe in the Declaration of Independence, that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men were created equal. That all men were created equal, and such is the case. All men were created by God equal in their humanity and in their eternal value, equal in their standing before the court of God. The emperor of China, the king or queen of England, the president of the United States, the ruler, or which now China no longer has a dynasty and an empire, and I forget what they call their leader nowadays, whether it's a president or administrator, whatever they call their leader, leaders in and of themselves are not different from other people. People, they are equal with other people in their position before God. We, Every man will stand and give an account of himself before God. Every man will stand. The, the damned will stand before God and give an account for their sin and be cast into the lake of fire. The justified through faith in Jesus Christ will stand before God and receive the reward for what they did with what they had, with what they did with the talents that were delivered them by God on this earth for the glory of God. But no man will stand between you and God at judgment day. No man will stand between you and God, and you will not stand between man and God. No man will have to answer to you, and you will not have to answer to any man. This is what Jesus taught. Look at the next verse in Matthew 23. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. 
He says, but he that is greatest among you, I skipped the verse I was looking at, verse 9, and call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. This is what Jesus Christ said to do. Call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Any man that claims to be father and answers to the title of father in all of so-called Christendom is a pervert and a heretic. Jesus Christ openly and plainly stated dogmatically, call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. It is clear here that he is not talking about the filial title of a daddy. He's not saying that you don't honor your father and mother according to the flesh because he reinforces that in other places. The direct context is clear. Call no man your master. Look at verse 10. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, with a capital M, even Christ. And then he says, but he that is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. This concept of a man sitting on a golden throne with a cross and ruling over the church is a concept straight out of hell. This is what Jesus is rebuking here in verse 13, but woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. And he goes on with many woes to the Pharisees, for ye devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayer. He says, ye shall receive the greater damnation, which obliterates this false concept and false doctrine of our day that all sin is equal, by the way. Jesus claimed that there would be greater damnation, and he would, and he gave it to the religious hypocrites. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Now, we're not going to read the rest of that. I'm very tempted to because it's such a powerful passage of Scripture and it openly decries everything that the Catholic Church and Orthodox Churches and Coptic Churches and all of these other deviations and heretical cultic Christianity circles do. Jesus Christ here destroys it all. I mean, right there in chapter 23, verse 15, he describes the Jesuit order in detail. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. But we're going to get back back here um, to our text, which is the equality of the believer. These things definitely apply, but they're kind of an offshoot and they're going a different direction than we're going today. Here we're looking at in Thessalonians, the equality of the, of the believer. Go to Revelation 2 and verse 15, which also deals, um, if we could, we could spend the rest of our time just in Matthew 23 and in Revelation 2 here in this letter to the church of Pergamos dealing with just the uh, excesses, errors, heresies, sins, follies, and frowardness of the Catholic Church, the Pope, the Archbishops, the Cardinals, the Orthodox churches around the world. And then we could even dive in and start um, using these very scriptures to unravel the false religion of every denomination that exists on the face of the earth. 
but we don't have time for that right now. Let's just learn what Jesus said about these things. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 15. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Here Jesus Christ, speaking to the church at Pergamos, says that there is a doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. And Nico means to rule or to rule over the laity. There is the layman, the person who's not clergy. Martin Luther um, described in his history and some of his writings, he described a painting that he saw in his early years of a ship that was on its way to heaven and the waters were full of people in the water struggling to swim, some of them grabbing ropes. And there were on the ship was the Pope and the archbishops and the cardinals and bishops and the monks and the priests and the friars. And some of the monks and friars were out of pity for the poor masses in the waters. They were throwing ropes over the side of the ship to give people a chance to get to heaven on the old ship of the Catholic Church on its way to Zion there. And none of the priests, none of the laity were in the waters. It was all the peasants and the farmers and the kings and the noblemen who were in the waters struggling to keep their head above the waters and to keep from perishing in the waters and suffering the wrath of Almighty God. And that picture could illustrate, you could have that picture next to this verse and it would perfectly illustrate what Jesus Christ is teaching, thou hast also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. This doctrine of a church clergy that has a special edge on God and that has some kind of direct communion with God that a normal man cannot have behind his plow and such thing Christ hates. Jesus Christ came and he didn't start with the Pharisees in their cloisters and in their nunneries and in their monasteries. He started with the poor fishermen and then he got a publican named Matthew, a tax collector, and he got the poor and the laborers and he told them to leave their nets and follow him. He said, from henceforth, ye shall fish men. He says, I shall, I will make you fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And he taught them to go forth um, two by two and to live on next to nothing, having no purse or scrip. Um, but then he also told them later to take purse and scrip, but what? To preach the gospel. And he sent them out to preach the gospel to every nation. But this doctrine of some kind of elitist church, some kind of elitist clergy, is straight out of hell. It's a false doctrine. It's a heretical doctrine. It's called the doctrine of the Nicolaitans in the Bible. Here in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 14, he says, For ye, brethren, this is the Apostle Paul saying, You received from us the word of God, not as it was the word of men, but as it was the in truth, the word of God. And he says to them, for ye brethren, the Pope claims to preach ex cathedra. Um, and he claims that whenever he preaches ex cathedra, that what he says is equivalent to the very word of God. Paul, the, which is false. And uh, Paul, the apostle here says that he took the very word of God, not on a golden throne, but on the back of a, on the whipped back of a apparently hunched back, balding, beat up, um, scarred up man who is hated by everybody that he took more powerful than ex cathedra he took the very word of God the very oracles of God to the church at Thessalonica and he said ye received it as it is in truth the word of God and then he turned around and said for ye brethren for ye brethren he did not lord it over the flock of God 
Now here he says that ye became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. This begs three questions. Whose churches? Who are these churches in? And how did the church at Thessalonica become a follower of this church? This is all the backdrop for the main topic that we're looking at, the heritage of suffering, which is the title here, a heritage of suffering. And this, we're going to see the equality of the believer throughout this. So here he says, you became followers of the churches of God. Note the plural use of churches here. There was not one church that he said you became followers of, which destroys a whole plethora of doctrines about the church. This whole idea that there is the church that you must follow. Here he says, you became followers of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ. And whose churches does he say that they are? They are the churches of God. And the location that they are in is in Judea. So these are the first churches, the early churches. We have the church at Jerusalem. Shortly after that, there's the establishment of the church in Samaria through the preaching of Philip. You have the um, the establishment of the church in Damascus that's mentioned directly in the book of Acts, which is outside the realm of Judea. And of course, you could argue the one in Samaria is not either. So that, But these are the churches that are spreading out from the churches that are in Judea. But those original early churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. These legitimate churches we're going to look at with just real quickly before we move on to the last part of the um, chapter where we will, Lord willing, spend the bulk of our time. So go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Lord, help us today as we teach your word. Ephesians chapter 2 and beginning in verse 11. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands that at that time ye were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. Here God gives us through the apostle Paul God speaking through the Apostle Paul, says that there were two groups of people, the Gentiles called the uncircumcision, and then the Jews who were called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. And that these, that the Gentiles of the uncircumcision were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, being separate. And this bears truth. This bears out with the testimony of Scripture. Jesus Christ left, um, um, went up by to that woman of Sarepta. Remember that? That Gentile lady that she wanted to um, have the devil cast out of her child and Jesus um, wouldn't hardly countenance her and she begged and begged him to do the miracle and he said to her, it is not meat to take the children's bread and cast it to, or give it to the dogs. And she said, truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from the children's table. And Jesus said, um, woman, great is thy faith, something to this effect. And he said, for this saying, go thy way. And the devil cast out of that child basically is what he said you can study it out and get the verbatim story from the word of God and the couple times it's mentioned in the gospels but in that story Jesus Christ uh, verified the reality that the physical seed of Abraham who make up the literal 12 tribes of Israel are the commonwealth of Israel and are the in a special way um, they're 
they have the covenants of the promise, they have the hope of God, they have the promise of Christ, they have the oracles of God. As Paul said, what advantage then is it to is the has the Jew? And he says, much every way, chiefly that unto them were committed the oracles of God. The Jew is a distinct um, human element in this world. It's not a spiritual Judaism that, that he's talking about that the blessing and the covenants went to. There is a spiritual Jew and a unspiritual Jew. The spiritual Jew believes in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The unspiritual Jew has rejected the Messiah, but they're all Jews. And here the Jews have the Messiah, whether they received him or accepted him. The Jews have the oracles of God, whether they received them or whether they um, rejected them. And the Gentiles did not. The Gentiles were strangers. They were far off. They were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus. Remember our text there said the churches which are in Christ Jesus. He says here to these Gentiles, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. So the separation of these two peoples was brought together by the blood of Christ. <coughs> Being in Christ makes you equal with others in Christ. So there was no authority and there was no hierarchy of the church of Jerusalem having any special level of authority over the other Gentile churches. And we've studied that. We've looked at that before. We'll continue to. I guess it doesn't matter whether we've studied or not. It's true and it's in the Bible. You can look at the in the book of Acts where the Apostle Paul and Barnabas were sent to Jerusalem to dispute over the fact that some people had come from Judea troubling the Gentile church and saying that except they be circumcised after the manner of Moses, they could not be saved. I believe it says there to keep the law as well. And I don't want to get into all of that right now. But I do want you to note that the it is clear from that text that the church at Jerusalem took no authority, direct authority over the Gentiles. The closest thing that it came to that was to give them four basic rules to live by, by order of the apostles, which made it apostolic commandments, not commandments coming from the church of Jerusalem. Also, why you would say, why then did Paul go back to Jerusalem? If you'll read Galatians, Paul said that those in Jerusalem added nothing to him, that those that seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me, he said. Paul did not claim his apostleship from Jerusalem. He did not claim his sending from Jerusalem. He did not claim his authority from Jerusalem, but rather from Jesus Christ himself directly. And Paul is giving that benefit to the Gentile church that you who were strangers and far off are now made nigh through the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, for he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. So here, um, before we move on, also, why did Paul go back to Jerusalem, where were the troublemakers from? Judea. And Jerusalem was the first church in 
in Judea. And so he went to the source of the trouble to deal with the trouble. And that's why he went to Jerusalem, not because Jerusalem had authority. Here he says that Christ abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of one of twain one new man, so making peace. So there it shows, it reveals that the law, as he said, was fulfilled in him. Here it's saying that the ordinances of the law were abolished in Christ and he broke down the middle wall of partition making one church out of Jew and out of Gentile making one body out of Jew and Gentile verse 16 and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross having slain the enmity thereby and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh them that were nigh being the Jews you which were afar off being the Gentiles Gentiles. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Did you get that? No church in any town has an edge on access to the Father. We're equal. We're in one body. If you are in the church, you are in the body. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are in the body. The church, the external church, is not the body of Christ, but the spiritual church, the believers in Jesus Christ, who have many autonomous, local, independent assemblies who follow Jesus Christ and obey his words and keep his commandments and follow the teachings of the apostles and the prophets, uh, make up the many members and the individuals of those church many more members of that one body which is Christ and in Christ we have access by one spirit unto the father there is no church that has a corner on the market there's only one corner stone mentioned in the Bible his name is Jesus We've got to keep moving here. He says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. Did you hear what it just said? Oh, wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. St. Matthew, St. John, St. Peter. He says here, you are fellow citizens with the saints. Now, this concept of a fellow citizen comes from free nations. Like at the time, to to an extent, Greece had a free democracy in Athens. And then after that, Roman, the Roman Empire was not really an empire when it was born, but a republic, which is what the United States is, is a democratic republic. In other words, it's a republic with some elements of democracy to balance it. It's not a democracy, as everybody likes to say. That's a lie, and that's clear if you just go back and read our founding documents. But that's a side note. In any case, fellow citizens means a man with equal rights. In the Declaration of Independence, it says all men are created equal and are endued by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Certain rights that cannot be transgressed by man. That if a king or a ruler tries to usurp these rights, he is defying the authority of Almighty God and has ceased to be a legitimate ruler because he has defied the authority of Almighty God. That's what they were saying. That's the idea. The fellow citizen is someone who has equality with other citizens. 
The concept of being a fellow citizen with the saints means that Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus there in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, um, or in verse 19 there, that the church, that the believers at Ephesus were equal, had equal rights, equal access, equal privileges as Matthew, as Mary, as Mark, as Bartholomew, as Patrick or Benedictine or any other person that you want to call a saint, whether they're a saint or not. The true saints of God, the believers in Jesus Christ, are fellow citizens. And look what it says right here. Pay attention. Fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And a side note on that, 2 Peter 2.2 also gives us this concept of, I hope I'm not jumping ahead, 2 Peter 2.2 gives us this idea of the apostles and the prophets here. Here we go, it's it's 2 Peter 3.2, that ye may be mindful of the words, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. And then um, you can go to Revelation, and it's clear from Revelation where it speaks there of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, that there are only 12. And there is absolutely nowhere in the Bible, except in the case of Judas, that you have anything even remotely like the succession of apostleship. And in that case, it says his bishopric let another take, and another took it, and that's the end of it. So you have the 12 apostles of the Lamb. You can go back and look at our other um, studies of the application of the word apostle to Silvanus and Timothy as a, in the sense of a missionary doing the vocational work of the apostle, but not having the authority to give the revealed word of God to the church. Um, and we studied that out before so you can look at that so here he says that the this church the fellow citizens citizens of the saints are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets jesus christ being himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the lord so jesus christ chose to call us brethren, as the Bible says. Not only are we brethren, but Jesus Christ chose to adopt us, um, chose through the Father, chose to adopt us through Jesus Christ so that he calls us brethren and he chooses to call us brethren, not by right, but by his grace and by his mercy so that then we become part of the building of God. Verse 22, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So these churches that are in Jesus Christ under the headship and authority and teaching of Jesus Christ who are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets which gives us the clear limit of 66 books of the Bible. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. um, These churches are what that church in Thessalonica became followers of. You say, wow, we ran around the mulberry bush to get to that, didn't we? Well, there's a reason for it. Um, We have a certain understanding that we've got to get before we can understand how they followed. Our big question is, how did they follow? And there's such a such a thing here, such a thing of these of churches trying to lord it over other churches and denominations and all this kind of political infighting throughout the ages that has resulted in so much apostasy and heresy and idolatry and wickedness that it had to be stated 
um, the equality of the believer had to be stated before the following of the believer. Now, with that understanding, we've looked at that. We're going to look at the true biblical interpretation of what they were following here. Our text makes it evident. Um, 2 Peter 2.20 tells us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, or it actually says in that verse that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Let God be true and every man a liar. The Bible defines the Bible. So he says here, Paul gives us in 1 Thessalonians how they became followers. Look at your text. He says, ye, became, uh, ye brethren, for ye brethren became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus, for ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. And they, here you have it, for ye also have suffered. For ye also have suffered is the key word, the key phrase here in this text. This is not a following of the churches through a denominational hierarchy. This is not the following of the churches of God in, Christ, in Judea in Christ Jesus through a particular church polity where you have decided to do things a certain way. We need to have so many deacons. We need to have a board of trustees. We need to have a presbytery, etc., etc., etc. Whatever you choose there for church polity, this is, that's not what he's talking about. This is not following the churches of Judea in the traditions of men or in the positions and power of, and prestige that man creates in order to exalt him Himself, which Christ said would land them in debasement by God. This is not becoming followers of the churches of Judea in man's wisdom and commandments, but this is a following of suffering. We're talking here today about a heritage of suffering. And for this, we could go through the entire book of Acts. There in Acts chapter 1, the disciples met in an upper room before the church was even baptized into one body before the church even had the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. Um, the church was meeting in the upper room, and the church was fearful. So we find that they were suffering before they became a church. You go back in the Gospels and find that the apostles suffered as they followed Christ. They suffered privation. They suffered hunger. They suffered um, times with absolutely nothing. They suffered ridicule. They suffered mocking. They suffered false accusation before they even became a church. And then we find them gathered in fear in Acts chapter 1 in the upper room where they were assembled together, actually in the close of, of Mark there. It talks about them being gathered in fear and then Jesus came back and bodily showed himself to them. They gathered in the upper room and they waited, but they did not have power. They did not have authority. They did not have unction to go out and be his witnesses. Acts chapter 2, they go out and preach the word in power and there's no sign of any kind of, go ahead and go there real quick, Acts chapter 2, there's no sign of any kind of persecution directly in Acts chapter 2. It covers the events of an afternoon, the events of part of a day. But in Acts chapter 3, they go out to preach the word. Peter and John went up and they preached the word of God. And the people gather around, what should we do? Repent. And he's preaching repent. Acts chapter 4 opens with persecution. And throughout the rest of the book of Acts, you have persecution. So we have a heritage of suffering. If you want to find the true church of Jesus Christ, the churches of God in... <coughs> Excuse me. The churches of God in any geographical location in any time in history, you will find it through the heritage of suffering. Um, all, this is the marks of the true church. There's a church that, there's a book that went out 
by a Baptist minister, and some of his views are so extremely um, slanted in favor of the Baptist group that it's hard to even get past that. I'll just say that right up front. Um, but his, I think his name was Carol, and it was called Trail of Blood. A lot of good information in that book, and he traces the history of the true church of Jesus Christ through the ages, through their suffering. Now, his conclusion, I'll just tell you to be fair right up front, and I'll give you my own opinion about it. His conclusion is that all the churches throughout the ages um, that suffered like that were Baptist. Some of you just about fell off your chairs, and or some of you howled, and some of you clenched your fists and raised it in the air and said, Amen. But in any case, the all throughout the ages, whatever name that the local groups went by, there was a base there were some basic fundamental elements of truth that were maintained in the local churches that are the true church of Jesus Christ. Listen to me today. And and listen here, I'm just gonna say it up front, and you and you can shut me off and throw this in the trash if you want. It wasn't the Mennonites. The Mennonites came from uh, Mino Simmons, who came, was a Catholic priest and came out of the Catholic Church. But there has always been a thread, a scarlet bloody martyrs thread of true churches throughout the history of the world that have believed in the autonomy of the local church. They have believed in believers baptism by immersion after salvation upon salvation and the confession of Christ as Lord as a testament of what God has already done. And they have believed in the Bible as the sole authority for all manner of life and of church and everything that has to do with church. But their politics within their churches and their names that they have gone by are as varied as can possibly be. But they've all had the same basic tenets. And the Baptist churches for a few hundred years have had carried that torch. They have, for, for a few hundred years, Baptist was one of the predominant groups that carried that torch. They were called Anabaptists. The Mennonites joined the Anabaptist movement through Mino Simmons, who came out as a Catholic priest, and then he split off and added a bunch of his own rules and regulations, which um, have a good, strong stench of Catholicism to them, like you have to wear this kind of hat and you have to wear that kind of dress to be part of our group. And he added all these external things to them, and they split off, and they try to claim to be Anabaptists to this day. And they're a splinter group of the Anabaptists that were actually birthed out of the Catholic Church and a turning from the sin and idolatry of the Catholic Church. I love them, but they're not legitimate Anabaptists. They'd probably get mad if they heard me say that. But I get, I just, it's truth. So what do you do about it? You just tell the truth. In any case, so the Baptists throughout history have been one group, especially during the Reformation era. They were called Anabaptists, which means non-baptizers, because they would not accept the Roman Catholic Church's heresy of infant baptism. And so the Catholic Church chased them and burned them and tortured them. These guys had been there for a long time in all kinds of different names of groups. All, but they all had the same basic tenets. They all had the same heritage of suffering. Since Acts chapter 4, the church has been hunted. The church has been harangued. The church has been belittled. The church has been murdered. The church has been martyred. And I'm not talking about Coptic Christians either. Lord, help us today. These Orthodox and Catholics and Coptics that go out here and they die supposedly for the name of Christ, but they're worshiping an idol on a crucifix, they bust hell wide 
wide open. They go and they go into the eternal lake of fire. They stand there and get beheaded by Muslims for the sake of Christ, but they've got another Christ, and they drop into hell, and they're going to stand and be judged at the great white throne of judgment and cast into the lake of fire. And all this ecumenicalism that has crept into the church and has has permeated the churches throughout the ages and the denominations is a bunch of junk. Do you hear me today? Those that truly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Jesus of the Bible, that turn in faith through his blood and are born again by the power of God are saved regardless of what group they name themselves by. But I'll tell you this right now, if they follow Jesus, they'll pretty soon find themselves an independent church. Because the established churches will kick them out of every denomination that there is across the world. Period. End of story. Because if you follow Jesus, he said, you'll be hated of all men for my sake. And it is true. The Bible says, yea, and all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. All the way back to 325 AD when Constantine presided over the council of Nicaea, there were churches that would not join the establishment. There were churches, and I believe some of them at the time were in the Alps and therefore were kind of sheltered. They managed to survive without as much persecution just because of the extremity of their geography. But there were churches all throughout that time, and their history can be traced in a trail of blood, in a scarlet thread of martyrdom all throughout history since Christ came to today, and they still exist today. True followers of Jesus Christ, and they're still hunted, they're still hated, they're still persecuted by everybody today. They're laughed at, they're told that they're stupid, they're told they don't know what they're talking about, and because they don't have big, um, great big huge fancy churches and robes and all this stuff to wear everybody thinks that they don't have anything valuable to say but um, they follow Jesus and that's all that matters didn't Jesus say he that abases himself will be exalted and he that exalts himself will be abased and the true churches of Jesus Christ throughout the ages are those that have abased themselves to follow Christ not in asceticism what is asceticism who knows that Asceticism is the is the belief that I can be holy by hurting myself. Or actually, that's masochism. That's the belief I can be holy by hurting myself. Asceticism is the idea that I can be holy by not eating a cookie. I am thoroughly against that doctrine. If you've listened very long, you know I like cookies. But in any case... You cannot be holy by denying yourself. You must deny yourself to follow Jesus Christ. That's true. But it's to follow Christ that you must deny yourself not to be holy. And the difference is the difference between true Christianity and false Christianity. Now, go to Galatians 6.17. We're going to go over some more text here. This brethren, he he mentioned he calls them brethren. For ye brethren. For ye brethren. And the brethren throughout history have always been the brethren. They're not ruled over by popes or bishops, not even by pastors. True churches um, of God, um, they may suffer for a time under the hand of a tyrannical pastor who raises up and tries to scatter the flock, but those that are truly of the Lord Jesus Christ and follow Jesus will not be able to follow a tyrannical pastor because they are following Christ. And even if they love a tyrannical pastor, they cannot continue to follow him. It will become impossible. Listen to me today. Following Jesus separates you from everybody.
We have a heritage of suffering. We don't have a heritage of golden robes. We don't have a a heritage of fine linens. We don't have a heritage of giant cathedrals. That's not the Christianity of Jesus Christ. The Christianity of Jesus Christ has a heritage of suffering. And Paul here commends the church in Thessalonica that they have made it obvious by their adherence to Christ and the subsequent sufferings that they endured, that they are followers. What? In what way? Not in hierarchy, not in lordship. Followers historically. The followers he's talking about there is following historically. Just as you there, my son, will follow me in my name. My name is Burks, and you will carry that name on and be a follower of me in name. He's saying that not in name, but in suffering, the church at Thessalonica has become a follower of the churches of God, which are in in Judea, in Christ. That they had became, they, they became torch bearers. They became, um, they, they carried the heraldry of Christ. They persevered forward in the cause and the call of Christ. And that their church was a true, legitimate church of Jesus Christ among the Gentile world. And that it was marked as such by its suffering. Galatians 6, 17. Paul says here, from henceforth, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. The true church of, church of Jesus Christ bears in its own body, in its own midst, the marks of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, um, asceticism, masochism, um, self-inflicted torture, or even trying to get, or even getting beheaded by somebody else doesn't prove that you are of Christ. It has to be the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can suffer for your own stupidity, as um, Peter deals with in detail. Go to 1 Peter. Uh, we're not going to go to 2 Corinthians where Paul outlines his, his proofs of apostleship. We've been there a lot lately. Um, 2, Peter, Peter, or 2 Peter 2.12. In 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 23, specifically through 27, Paul outlines his marks and his, his stripes and all the suffering that he has done in the name of Christ, in obedience to the gospel of Christ, as a preacher of the gospel of Christ. And that's what sets apart the true church from the false church. If you get beheaded because you don't believe in Muhammad and you go and you bow before a picture of some kind of Jesus with a halo around his head and you kiss the ground and you kiss the image and you say all these right sayings and you pray these prayers but you've never been born again, your beheading is not for the cause of Christ. I don't care how noble it is. I don't care how beautiful your priestly robes are, and I don't care how brave you are standing in front of your little shrine with all your icons. When the Muslim comes and beheads you, you will go to hell because you have not submitted yourself to the righteousness of God through Christ, which is by faith. And that comes from straight from the Scripture. So 1 Peter 2 here in verse 12, he says, but, oh, I'm in 2 Peter, boy. I can't win for losing today. 1 Peter 2, 12, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. He goes down here and he says, um, 
to submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. We're not studying the right of authority and of governors and of kings right now, but he's saying submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. This is obviously balanced by other verses like we ought to obey God rather than man. He says here as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? He said, when you do something stupid, when you say something dumb and somebody punches you in the mouth, don't cry, I'm suffering for Jesus' sake. He said, saying there's no glory in that, but if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. And look at this verse here. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. All these ascetics out here and stuff in the monasteries trying to afflict themselves in order to deny themselves, they've missed the whole thing. If you are saved and you follow Jesus, you will suffer for Christ and you don't have to do it to yourself. You'll come by it naturally. You ever hear that said about a son that some boy and his dad has a bad temper problem, bad anger problem. And he flies off the handle all the time. And that boy hits about 13 and he walks into town and some other boys are talking. And next thing you know, that boy's screaming and raging and yelling and throwing punches. And somebody standing by says, man, he came by that honestly. The apple didn't fall far from the tree. Well, listen to me. Jesus Christ, in three and a half years of ministry, suffered intensely. He suffered rebuke. He suffered reproof that were false. He suffered false accusation. He suffered privation. He suffered hunger. And then finally, he suffered um, physical beatings. He suffered cruel treatment. He suffered the crown of thorns. He suffered the whip across his back. He suffered the nails on the cross, and he died for us on the cross and was buried, and he rose again the third day. If you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, and you are following Jesus, which true believers in Jesus Christ do, and false believers do not. If you are a true believer, you will follow Christ. And if you follow Christ, yea, and all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You won't have to make it up. You won't have to get a group together to crucify yourselves on crosses to please God like they're doing in some places in the Philippines and other places. You won't have to do that kind of stuff. Because if you follow Jesus, this world will crucify you for free. You won't have to do it to yourself. This is what he's saying here. This is the marks of the true church. That you will suffer for Christ's sake. The marks of the true church. We have received a heritage of suffering. Go back to our text there as we close. The lesson for today. The message today. I hope and pray that this is a blessing to you and that you will use this, that you'll grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You need to if you're going to follow Jesus because you will have to suffer. He says here in chapter 2 and verse 14, we're going to read our text again. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have the Jews. I ask you today, is your church following the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus? Is your church following them? Oh, you say you're following them because you have all these traditions and doctrines of men and (coughs) so-called succession of apostleship or something like that. It's not biblical. But here the heritage of the church of Jesus Christ is set forth by the Apostle Paul as an heritage of suffering. Is your church the one that kills people that don't follow them? Or is your church that dies for the name of Jesus Christ? Oh, I know that even the Catholics have their martyrs. Those who have died, like um, sometimes their missionaries out on the foreign field have died and have suffered at various times. And a lot of times their stories will find their way into modern Christian readings. And people will sit there and say, wow, look at that man who suffered for Christ. But he didn't suffer for Christ. He doesn't count. But by and large, that church has been the murderer of Christians throughout the ages and still is today and would be openly in America if it could be. It's shel- we're sheltered from it here, but other places of the world are not as fortunate. Is your church the true church of Jesus Christ? Are you following Jesus? Have you got the marks of the true church? We've been given a heritage of suffering. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you'd help us, Lord, first of all, to examine ourselves to see whether we be in the faith. For Christ Jesus is in us, except we be reprobates, Lord. I pray that you'd help us to examine ourselves. Secondly, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to examine our churches. Are we part of the true church of Jesus Christ? Is our church suffering true persecution for the cause of Christ? Or are we suffering over stupid things? Are we suffering, Lord, in spite of our... um, Are we suffering the loss of power and a power outage? And we call that, but Lord, help us to really, truly look at this biblically. Are we suffering the way that your church has suffered throughout the ages? And if not, Lord God, then why are we so dead and cold that the world doesn't see fit to give us persecution? I pray, Lord God, that you would help us not to seek persecution, but to follow Christ. For we know that then this will also be true of us. Help us, Lord, to be right with you in Jesus' name. I pray that you'd use this message to also remove the, the lies that Satan has told so many people and help them to find the truth, Father, in Jesus' name and for Christ's sake, amen.